0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is a guest essay. It's called Me Too. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 13th, 2016, the fifth Sunday in Lent. This is a guest essay by Carrie Leroy an attorney based in Palo Alto and mother of three. Leroy is the leader of an innovative pro bono program focused on educating Bay Area teens about laws relating to social media usage. The program aims to empower teens to be good citizens online and to deter unlawful conduct. Leroy has trained organizations and other attorneys to enable the program's expansion. In 2014, she received a Legal Innovators Award from the Recorder in recognition of her work on the program, and in 2015 was selected by the Silicon Valley Business Journal as one of the publication's Women of Influence. She also was the recipient of the Wiley W. Manuel Award for Pro Bono Legal Services from the California Bar for providing legal services to the poor. Once again, the title, Me Too. Until recently moving to a neighboring town, I lived most of my life in Palo Alto, California, an affluent Silicon Valley town that attracts the most ambitious, best minds. High achievers, accomplished, you know, driven people. The place to lean in along with Cheryl Sandberg. As the mother of a teenager in Palo Alto, it's an understatement to say that it was rather unsettling when a few years ago, the Dr. Phil show descended upon my town to interview teens about what we now reluctantly admit was the first of two suicide clusters in the past six years among the teenage population. There's an interesting in-depth article in the December 2015 Atlantic that explores this topic. It's called the Silicon Valley suicides. Why are so many bright prospects killing themselves in Palo Alto? Suicide is complicated. I'm not a mental health expert, and I won't attempt to answer the one question that matters, why? I note that psychology professor Dr. Suniya Luthar, cited in the Atlantic article, expressed concern that there are a lot of very hard truths that are just not being spoken in relation to the suicides. <coughs> we throw our collective hands up in the air, say there's no single factor that leads to suicide, and follow the protocols on communications aimed at preventing suicide contagion keep it quiet. But do we also need to discern the hard truths that are unspoken? This past January, I learned that my former neighbor in Palo Alto, a 46-year-old mother of two teens, committed suicide. I lived across the street from her for six years. I'll call her Jim. She was a Chinese-American. She smiled and waved at me engaged in small talk, and showed no outward signs of mental illness or distress whatsoever. Our kids attended a birthday party at her house, and she and her family attended a Christmas party at our house. Since her death, I've learned that Jen suffered from severe depression, anxiety, and the downward spiral of shame, experienced in isolation and secrecy. Her family is openly talking about this now. It's Lent, and I'd say a fine time in the Christian tradition to examine our own hard truths. Here's my hard truth in relation to Jen. While busy finding relief from my own angst through centering prayer and increasing involvement in my church community, I overlooked my neighbor Jen entirely. I could say that I was too busy, and that I was occupied with several worthwhile endeavors, and that it's of course not always possible for us to detect or reach out to a neighbor in distress. But it wasn't just about being busy. Not long after Jen moved to my neighborhood, the Yale Law School professor Amy Chua published her book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, to explain to American Caucasians like me why Chinese mothers do a better job of preparing their offspring for worldly success. So, I saw Jen, but I did not really see Jen. I will blame what must have been my own bias that says people like Jen are always the picture of mental health, strong, resilient. Better than me at staying sane in a world that wants me to prioritize competition, success, and the accumulation of things. Since her death, I've been replaying a conversation in my head that I could have had with Jim. It goes something like this. Smile, Jim. Haven't you heard that saying, that it's no measure of health excuse me, that it's no measure of health to be adjusted to a profoundly sick society? It's not you. It's this place and time. We both have kids in a city that's dealing with a teen suicide epidemic, and I'm scared too. My son tells me that he has no friends, and that people at his high school are too busy focusing on their academic achievement to even talk to him. Oh, you feel alone and disconnected from others? Me too. The weight of the world falls on you at times, Me too. Oh, I don't need to sell you on my particular religion, but I want you to know that community is vital. As Maya Angelou reminds us in her poem, Alone. (coughs) Listen to her poem. Lying, thinking last night how to find my soul a home Where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone I came up with one thing, and I don't believe I'm wrong, that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. There are some millionaires with money they can't use. Their wives run around like banshees. Their children sing the blues. They've got expensive doctors to cure their hearts of stone, but nobody, no nobody can make it here alone. Alone, all alone. Nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Now if you listen closely I'll tell you what I know. Storm clouds are gathering, the wind is gonna blow. The race of man is suffering, and I can hear the moan, cause nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. I don't have all the answers, Jen, but the only way to get through suffering is together. This I know. Being a mother, working long hours, achieving success or perfection in every aspect of our lives is kind of impossible, don't you think? May I tell you about the time my mother who suffer from paranoid schizophrenia and depression, tried to commit suicide when I was nine years old. I'm so grateful that she survived and that her medication regime significantly improved the quality of her life, including the time that she spent with her grandkids in her later years. Jen, we need you here. Would you like to join my Centering Prayer group? It's a Christian form of meditation, but you don't have to be Christian. You just have to be anxious. Being depressed is optional. We are all oddballs trying to find practices that make us feel a bit more sane as we struggle with the sense that the priorities of the world leave us feeling worried, empty, drained, and isolated. Just maybe, Jim, these priorities are wrong. Maybe the hope for us is not in leaning in, but in leaning out. Too often our truths are held in silence and isolation. In the reading from the Apostle Paul this week, he writes to the Philippians from his jail cell in Philippians 3.8, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The things and attachment of this world are not enough. Not for Paul, not for Jim, not for any of us. Status, wealth, possessions, appearances, fear of truly being seen or seeing others, fear of the tiger mom and other associated rubbish, stand in the way of our ability to be in Christ. How could I love my neighbor if I could not even see her? The author, Dr. Brené Brown, famous for her TED Talks on vulnerability and shame, calls Me Too the two most powerful worlds in the English language when we're struggling. I will never know what pain Jen was carrying. Now she's gone and her children are adjusting to a new awful reality. What is left for me is a renewed commitment to a rejection of the rubbish in favor of open and authentic expressions of sometimes hard truths. Perhaps the most profound manifestation of Me Too is Jesus' naked suffering on the cross. And that moment of vulnerability points, of course, to resurrection. A Guest Essay by Carrie LeRoy, Me Too. For books this week, I review a title by David McCullough. It's called The Wright Brothers. New York, Simon & Schuster, 2015. This book is 320 pages long. On Thursday, December 17th, 1903, at 1035 in the morning, in the presence of five men, Orville Wright flew for 12 seconds and 120 feet above the beaches of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It was one of the most important pivot points in all of human history. The flyer that he and his brother Wilbert had built had a four cylinder motor that produced eight horsepower, a one gallon fuel tank, two propellers that were eight and a half feet in diameter and weighed about 600 pounds. And in fact, the moment was captured in one of the most iconic photographs ever taken. Which picture graces the cover of this book? After more trial and error, more and better flights followed. 105 flights in 1904. In the summer of 1905, they routinely flew 24 miles in 38 minutes, taking off and landing in the same spot. It seems strange in our media-saturated culture where the information travels around the world in seconds, but it was not until 1908 in France that the first real media attention and full-scale public demonstrations occurred, by which time the Wright brothers were flying two hours at a time across 77 miles at about 40 miles per hour before enthusiastic crowds of thousands and the kings of England, Spain, and Italy The master historian David McCullough has won two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom for his previous work. This book shows why. It's brisk enough to be a page-turner that doesn't bog down in details, but comprehensive enough to tell the whole story, based upon diaries, notebooks, and over a thousand letters. He's especially interested in the special closeness of the entire Wright family, the unique role that their sister Catherine played, she was the only one in the family to go to college, and the genuine rectitude and modesty of the inseparable bachelor brothers who began life as bike mechanics in Dayton, Ohio. Once again, David McCullough, the Wright brothers. For movies this week I review Spotlight from the year 2015. At a simple level, this historical drama tells the story of how in 2001 a Boston Globe investigative team called Spotlight documented and then published proof that the Catholic Archdiocese in Boston had actively and systematically covered up a massive pedophilia scandal in its churches. Before it was over, similar revelations the world over rocked Catholicism. But to its credit, the movie shows that the truth is not quite so simple. Even the Boston Globe sat on this same story years earlier. Police turned a blind eye. Attorneys made money on confidential settlements that remained private. Church bureaucrats followed orders from higher-ups. Victims and their families were shamed, silenced, and threatened. Outloaded laws and statute of limitations complicated matters. Limited budgets, competition with other local newspapers, and more urgent stories, like the 9-11 disaster in 2001, complicated the work. At one point, a reporter says, everybody knew something, but nobody did anything. In 2003, the real spotlight unit of the real Boston Globe won a Pulitzer Prize for its investigative efforts. This movie has won numerous festival and critics awards, including six nominations for the Academy Awards. The movie reminds us of the important role of a free press in a civil society. Spotlight. And finally, for the fifth Sunday in Lent, we posted a poem by G.K. Chesterton, 1874 to 1936. It's called The Donkey. Chesterton captures Palm Sunday from the perspective of the donkey that Jesus rode. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew up upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, The devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will. Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears in palms before my feet. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 13th, 2016, the fifth Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin,